All right, it's a joy to be with you this evening, and I want to share with you from the Word of God, First Timothy, please, First Timothy chapter 3, and uh, while you're turning there to First Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, I want to just say that the last time I was here was very intimidating for me, uh, because uh, Vern Bartlett and his wife Joyce, now Vern's with the Lord, but Vern and Joyce were there, and then Dwayne Staus and Mary were there, and uh, those were people that taught me. And I was sat at their feet, and now that particular Sunday, there was a reversal of roles, and they were sat at my feet, and it was very intimidating. But anyway, the Lord was very gracious and gave help, and uh, even got some positive comments from these men. But these men had a profound impact on my life, I have to say, uh, those two men. So anyway, it's good to be here. I'm not sure exactly when it was last time I was here, but First Timothy 3, I want to read from verse 14. It says, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And again, God will bless that short reading from his word to us uh, this evening. So uh, my thoughts this evening, I've been thinking a lot about essentials. Uh, This Saturday, I spoke on the essential of the preaching of the cross. And I feel like we're getting away from essentials. And this essential is the house of God. I want to think about the house of God tonight. Now, why I want to think about the house of God and why I want to stress it as essential. And that is because in the pandemic, there was uh, a statement that only essential businesses were to stay open. That included liquor stores. Somehow they're considered to be essential. But the house of God was not considered to be essential. And so we all shut down and obedient, meek as we were, pretty much all shut down and, and all the rest of it. I wonder about that. Why is the house of God so essential? Let me just give you a statement about the house of God, which has really had a profound effect on my thinking. I believe that the house of God is essential because it is a witness to divine order in the midst of satanic disorder. Let me say that again. I think it's a very interesting definition. A witness to divine order in the midst of satanic disorder. So let me give you an example. In our world, uh, it really is disorderly right now, would you say? I mean, it's really confused. It's so confused that children growing up don't even know anymore whether they're boys or girls. Now, that's confusing, isn't it? God is not the author of confusion, is he? No, not at all. So so here we have this, the, the general world at large is greatly confused about the most simple, basic issue, right? So we can't look to the wisdom of the world for any help. In fact, let me just say this. Where do you expect to find truth today? That's an interesting question. Where do you expect, you expect to find it in school? Oh, no, not in school anymore. You can't expect to find truth in school. Even from kindergarten, you can't expect to find truth because nobody believes in absolutes anymore. So nothing is really true. It's all relative, right? 
So, so the educational system, sorry if you're a teacher, but the educational system has lost the plot generally. I think that would be a fair statement to make. You can't expect to get truth. And especially in higher education, you cannot expect to get truth there. What about the media? Can you expect you're going to get truth there? Oh, I don't think so. They've been caught in lies over and over and over and over again. You can't expect to get truth in the media. So let me ask you, where do you think you ought to get the truth of the house of God? It is, you may see in this, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the one place where you ought to find truth and no gender confusion, right? Everything's pretty clear. It ought to be in the house of God if we're really following what the word of God says. And so I think it's essential. But I want to just kind of give a quick outline of First Timothy because it's all about behavior in the house of God. Every chapter deals with that topic, I believe. And so it begins with this. Uh, in chapter one, the house of God and its gospel. And that's where he begins, right? He talks about the gospel that has been committed to him. And, and of course, we, we can't afford to lose that. And, and, and I really believe that we should be passionate about the gospel. This is a place where people can come and hear the glad tidings, part of the truth that we're to defend and proclaim is the truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, right? The very things we read there, uh, the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. All, the, all of those essential statements in verse 16 ought to be clearly proclaimed in every New Testament assembly, right? Because that's why we're here. That's what it's about. We're to proclaim the truth. House of God and its gospel. And then chapter two, very important chapter, the house of God at prayer. See, the Lord Jesus said that his house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And again, it's sad to say that prayer meetings are often the Cinderella meetings of the local church. And we wonder why we're not seeing much blessing, because we're not praying much. That's why. And prayer should really grip us. And so this chapter two is marvelous. Uh, not just describing the fact that uh, how we're to pray, uh, what we're to pray for, all the different details. It, it lays it out beautifully. And, and I really like it. I'm going to just mention a couple of things just in passing because of time constraints. But but it is interesting that in that prayer, we're to pray that we live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and honesty. And I want to just say that the reason why we're to pray for peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and honesty is not because we can pursue the American dream. It's so that conditions will be suitable for the spread of the gospel. That's why we're to pray for peaceable and quiet lives in all honesty and godliness and honesty. Towards the end of chapter two, you've got the house of God and gender roles. And it's very clear. Uh, for instance, it says in verse eight, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And of course, it, the word there that is literally the males. Now he's used the term men several times in the chapter, but it's always uh, in, in the sense of the generic use of mankind. And so I will that all, it's his will that all mankind be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, right? But when he gets to verse eight, he gets gender specific. He said the males, they're the ones who are to take the lead in prayer in the house of God. And so again, there's no confusion about gender roles in the house of God. Uh, men and women have different roles, and it's laid out for us very, very clearly. Uh, women are not to 
speech, that you learn in silence without subjection, all of those things. Very, very clear. It, it's, it's so clear. The only reason why people have difficulty with it is they don't want it to be clear. And they're trying to get round the scriptures. And I get tired of people who are trying to get round the word. You know, they're trying to, as it were, I know that's what it says, but it's not very culturally normal. You see, it's, we're a bit odd. We're meant to be a bit odd. Remember, witness to divine order in the midst of satanic disorder. We're supposed to be different. And if we're not different, we're not following the word of God. We're supposed to be different. Because it's the last bastion, the last testimony, the last witness in a dying world to the truth of a a God who revealed himself in the word of God and has laid out his order. And we are to follow that. And then, of course, you've got the house of God and its oversight in chapter three. And, of course, if you're going to have order, you have to have government. Where there's no government, there's no order, right? If there's a breakdown in government, then you end up with anarchy, right? So in the local church, having stated divine order in chapter two, he then goes on to chapter three and says, well, to have that order, you have to have somebody who's going to be the policeman, right? You're going to have somebody who's going to have to say, uh, no, this is what the word of God says. We cannot do that, even if everybody else is doing it, right? You've got to have somebody who will stand on the word of God. And so God raises up overseers and overseers have no business to change the behavior of the house of God. Their job is to maintain it. Now, let me just say that it says how you behave yourself in the house of God. Of course, it's revealed in the scriptures how you behave in the house of God. And there's an appropriate behavior for the house of God. And let me just say this, that um, if I, I'm staying with the Georges tonight, and they're, they're very keen to make me feel welcome, and I appreciate that. But imagine that when we get back tonight, I suddenly ask uh, Charles, well, where is your, your shed? Because I, I need a sledgehammer. You know, well, what do you need a sledgehammer for? Well, you said make yourself a home. I don't like where this wall is. I decided I'm going to remove it because I'll feel more comfortable then. And I can imagine Charles, as quiet as he is and as, you know, just as gentle as he is, I can imagine him saying, brother, there's a really nice Motel 6 down the street. <laughs> I think you'd feel very comfortable there, right? Because it's his house. And in his house, although I'm a guest and a welcome guest, I need to respect the house rules. Now, the church is the house of God. Lake Howell Bible Chapel doesn't belong to brother Irwin or any person in this it belongs to the lord it's his house and he has the right to dictate house rules i'm just thankful that i can be in the house right and we should be thankful and we should have that right attitude and and so by the way let's think about a house what are the things that you want to see in a house i want to suggest three things that you should see in a house for it to be appropriately house of god Three quick suggestions. One is that you expect in God's house order. You don't expect it to be chaotic because God, by his very nature, is a God of order. So his house would reflect him somehow, right? So you'd expect order in the house. You'd also expect in uh, his house uh, not only to be to be order, uh, you'd expect there to be love. Just like in any house, right? A good house that you go in, you expect Respect it, order when you go in the house. Charles's house is very orderly. Everything's where it should be, which is good, right? I didn't get the sense of chaos when I went into that house. Praise God, right? It's orderly. 
But but it's I can tell it's a loving home. They love each other, which is the house of God should be a place of love. And then it should be a place of cleanliness, right? So I don't want to be in a dirty house. Do you? You ever been in a house that's really, really dirty? I mean, really dirty. It's pretty challenging to stay in a house. Let me tell you one story. I won't say where or anything like that. But I, I, I can tell you uh, in terms of a traveling preacher, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. <laughs> I've lived in amazing places with the Lord's people. Very kind. I've also, remember one place, the bed was obvious. Somebody else has slept in it. In fact, it was obvious a lot of people had slept in the bed. And there was lots of evidence in the bed that people had slept in the bed. And I was so tired because I'd driven for hours to get to this place. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? Well, I can't sleep on the floor because the floor is dirtier than the bed. So what I did is I just got my hand and I scraped all the stuff off the bed. I got into the bed because I was so tired and I was itching all over. You ever had that feeling where you just kind of feel like you're going to be eaten alive by something? And I thought, well, at least in the morning, I can get in the shower and get cleaned up. So then next morning, I got up, went to the shower, pulled the shower curtain back up. No, <laughs> I can't even go in there. It was utterly awful. Now, I'm not just not, no clues at all. But what I'm saying is that you, you expect a house to be clean. Now, when it comes to the house of God, you expect those that are in the house of God to be clean because his house is holy. I'm not saying that we get scrubbed up before we come into the meeting. What I'm saying is holiness belongeth to his house. And so there ought not to be dirty priests. And every believer is a priest. There ought not to be dirty priests in the house of God. Should be clean. So the house of God and its oversight. House of God, chapter four, in the latter days. Oh, boy, I think we're we can see that lots of times some shall depart from the faith. It's, it's talking about apostasy in the latter days and the house of God. And it's going to become increasingly difficult to stand firm on the house of God because the overall trend is that of apostate Christianity. And those are the days we're in. Incredible things going on today. Shocking things that will just blow your mind. And so the house of God in the latter days, it needs to hold firm to the truth of God. And then chapter five, house of God and its relationships and responsibilities. How do you look after the widows in the assembly? How do you look after the, the, uh, how do you respect the elders and the elderly people, not elders as in chapter three, but elderly folks? How do you respond to them? And it's important that we relate properly to one another in a respectful, caring way. And then chapter six, the house of God and its finances, uh, stewardship. So, so this is kind of a quick overview of the house of God, but I want to think about in the remaining time, I want to go back with, uh, with you to Genesis 28, because I believe that when he says here <clears throat> in verse 15, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I believe that Paul, being a Jew who cut his teeth on the Old Testament, that was his Bible. And you can't read Paul's writings without the Old Testament scriptures bleeding through. And so he often alludes to the Old Testament, quotes from the Old Testament. And so you have to pay attention to that. And so I really believe, and keep your marker in chapter 3, 
and, and verse uh, 15, because we'll, we'll come back and, and show why it is a rightful allusion to Genesis 28, that he was thinking Genesis 28 as he's writing 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. We're breaking in verse 12. You know the story well. Uh, it's, it's Jacob. He's running away uh, from Esau. And uh, it says in verse 10, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took the stones of the place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, just a couple of points there. Obviously, he didn't have time to take to pack his pillow uh, with him. Right. I mean, he literally went with the clothes on his back. He had to get out of there and get out of there quickly. And so he his bed that night. I'm hoping my bed tonight will be more comfortable. I'm sure it will be. But he laid on the ground and his pillow was a rock. Now, I've slept in beds where sometimes you feel like the pillow is a rock, but this was a literal rock, right? And so there he is. And while he's sleeping, amazingly enough, he obviously was exhausted, probably emotionally exhausted from all that's happened. to leave his family, leave his home, all of these things. And then it says in verse 12, he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angel of God ascended and descended on it. So the the first thing he sees is this dream and a ladder. Of course, we know from the New Testament that that ladder that bridges the gap between man on earth and God in heaven. On first John chapter one, right, is the Lord Jesus. You'll see the son of man and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So quite clearly, Christ is that ladder. And so in one sense, one of the things about the house of God that we learn immediately, it's the place where people learn how they can get from here on earth to heaven, right? It's the place where if nothing else you learn here, you should learn that, that it's true. There's only one, what does the Bible say? One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, right? He is that ladder but notice too the angels of god ascending and descending on it and i just want to say that when you think of the house of god i want to just focus on this thought that there's great angelic interest in the house of god the angels are interested in what goes on here it it may be considered not essential in american society today during a pandemic but angels are always interested in the house of god in fact, it's interesting. The reason I'm in assembly fellowship is because of that very truth of the angel's interest. Because First uh, Corinthians 11, when he says, for this cause, Lord, a woman have authority on her head because of the angels. And I had been taught that it was cultural. And when I looked at that passage, I thought there's nothing cultural, nothing cultural about angels. They transcend culture. Amen. Okay. And so that was a conviction that I need to be in a place where they take that truth seriously because the angels take that truth seriously. And even uh, just Ephesians 3.10, God's manifold wisdom is being demonstrated by the church onto the angels in heaven. It's amazing, isn't it? So they're really interested and they always have been. And so house of God, general principle, angelic interest, stairway to heaven. Again, it's not Babel. Uh, it's Christ. Uh, Babel is man's effort to work his way to God in chapter 11. But this stairway to heaven is none other than the son of man, 
Uh, also, it's a place where the promises of God are reiterated. Look at verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Israel, of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again to this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. So it's a place where the promises of God are reiterated to the people of God. That's the first mention. Right, this is the principle of first mention. First time you ever see the house of God in the word of God is here. And the, and whenever the, the principle of first mention, when everything, anything's mentioned for the first time, it keeps that character throughout the whole word of God. So the house of God is a place where his promises are reiterated. And even personal promises are reiterated, right? He, to him, there's a personal promise. I'm with thee, will keep thee in all the places where thou goest. And are we glad, by the way, in the day we live for the marvelous promises of God in the world? This is a place where we hear them. And we should be reminded of them, all his wonderful promises. And then it's a place of his presence. Notice again, please, verse 16. It says, Jacob awaked out of his sleep. And he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. Now, it is true. The Lord was in that place. And sometimes we're not as conscious of the presence of God in the meetings as we ought to be. But he is present in the house of God. And you see it, of course, in the Old Testament uh, when they made the tabernacle and erected it. uh, His presence was very tangible. The glory cloud filled the house when the temple was was built by Solomon. Again, the glory cloud filled the house. And yet when we get to the New Testament, we only have a simple promise where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst. And there's no glory cloud. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is largely this. The Old Testament was very sensual. Now, that word is often misunderstood today, but what I mean was everything was designed to speak to the senses. So you had the incense on the altar. You had the burnt offering, right? You had the priest garments for glory and beauty. You had everything about it appealed to the senses. When you come to the New Testament, everything is by faith on what God has said in his word. So we talked about the angels and their interest. How do we know the angels are watching? Has anybody ever seen one? How do we know? We know it because God says it and we believe it, right? Because God says it. How do we know that Jesus is present? Because he says so. Nobody's ever smelt him, touched him, felt him, right? But there's been times where we've been incredibly conscious of his presence in the meeting. Now, it's interesting. This is just an aside here, but I really believe that although by faith we believe he is present, there, there are times when God is so at work in the local assembly that it's ever evident to everybody that he is present. And I've been in meetings like that where you just sense the Lord is working. He's speaking. He's so evidently there. And every, you don't have to say that morning where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst. Everybody knows he's in the midst. Everybody knows. And how we need to be praying that there would be a tangible sense of the presence of God in our gathering. 
So much so that in First Corinthians, it says if an unbeliever comes in, would they not fall down on their face and say, God is among you of a truth? Wouldn't that be wonderful if somebody walked in here one Sunday morning, an unbeliever, and the presence of God was so tangible in the meeting that the unbeliever literally fell on his face and said, God is here. Could that, would you get excited about that? I think I'd get really excited if that happened, right? And we need to be praying for that, that his presence, we know it's promised, but that we'd be conscious of it uh, more and more. Now, another thing about it, verse 17, notice it says, he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is not only the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. So there was a sense of reverence and a sense of fear. How dreadful is this place? I wonder if we really understood the holiness of God, we'd take it a lot more seriously. And reverence and holiness are fitting for his his house. And so it is a place where there's reverence in his presence. And it's funny, uh, you know, it's amazing how um, there, there are certain houses where if you were to go there, there's an expected decorum because you go into the house. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when my wife and I became naturalized U.S. citizens. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing. They, they managed to uh, split us up. So we were, we were naturalized on different days and in different places. She was in Atlanta. Uh, I was down in Valdosta, Georgia. So we're two different places, two different days. But I got to go to her day, and it was a big day for her, and everything was, it was very special. And so um, there was a man there in the, in the auditorium where we were being naturalized. And he had a hat on. And the person who was leading the ceremony, he said, he said, we cannot start this ceremony until you remove your hat, sir, because I represent the president of the United States and I require you remove it. Now, he's gone all this time trying to get his citizenship. He's you know what he's going to do. He's going to take his hat off. And he did. And everybody got their citizenship. But I think about that. If the president of the United States expects a certain decorum, what about the king of kings and the Lord of lords? There should be reverence for the house of God, who we're coming to meet, who is here. And so the reverence and fear of God. We said the gate of heaven. That's an interesting thing, the gate of heaven. In the, in the scriptures, the gates were where affairs were administered. So if you if you had an issue in Israel, you went to the gate, and that's where your issues were dealt with, right? That's where... God's affairs were administered in the gates. Remember the story of Ruth when he wanted to, uh, Boaz wanted to, to get away. He had to go to the gate and get it all sorted out. It's the place of authority. And so this is the administ where God's authority is ministered and administered is the house of God. That's where it is, a place where that is taken care of. It's also a place of separation. It's interesting that um, it used to be called Luz and now it's called Bethel. And so Luz means separation, separation to Bethel, as it were, from what it used to be to the house of God, a place where man once was separated from God because of sin and now comes to the house of God and becomes part of it. Who are the people that constitute this house of God? Well, there are a bunch of scoundrels like Jacob. Remember Jacob, the twister that's running away from all his problems? And oftentimes, people that are running away from all their problems, they find solutions at the house of God. That's where they find answers. That's where they find help. That's where they find blessing. And so we're just a bunch of Jacobs, right? All of us, really. We've all got our histories. And yet here we are in house of God. Isn't that wonderful? God's grace, God's mercy. 
And it's also a place where commitments are made. It's kind of interesting that that Jacob makes a commitment. He vows a vow. Verse 20 says, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, I go. I will give me bread to eat, raiment to put on, so I'll come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So the house of God is a place where people, having met with God, make commitments to God. And there are many commitments being made in the house of God. Commitments of service, uh, commitments of giving of themselves, of of their resources. Those kind of decisions are made in the house of God. And notice, uh, we said we wanted to tie this together. We've got to finish. Uh, But you notice it says, um, verse 22, this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. So his pillow became the pillar. So Jacob slept on the ground, right? And now there's this pillar that's erected. And the house of God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, kind of the ground is, is, well, it's the foundation, right? And so it's where God's truth is maintained and defended, okay? Because the foundation, right? The ground is the foundation. And so we've got to keep that foundation. No other foundation is there than that which is made, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation built on that rock, right? And then the pillar, it's kind of interesting that if you wanted to get a message out in the ancient world, you normally would put something on a pillar. They didn't have Twitter in those days or Facebook. They put something on a pillar. And so it's the place where the truth of God is defended and proclaimed. So is the house of God essential? Well, without it, truth would be lost to the human race. You see, the world is under the sway of the evil one, right? The prince of the power of the air. And what is he? Well, one thing the Bible says about him, he's a liar from the very beginning. He's the chief minister of propaganda and false information. And so this world is spewing out this propaganda, this false information, and people are blinded by the God of this world. They're believing all this stuff. They're swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. And the only place where you expect to find truth in this day. So is it essential? Well, if truth is important, the house of God is essential. It really is. And so now that the pandemic is over, it's okay to come back to the house of God, right? And uh, I know it's convenient to stay home in your PJs and sup coffee and watch it all on Zoom. But there's something better than that. That is being present in the house of God with the people of God, sharing that common sense of the presence of God who is among Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless this, these meditations to our hearts this evening. And again, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that in a world of confusion, here's something that's clear. Here's something that's very evidently the truth because it comes from the one who is the truth, who cannot lie. And Father, how thankful we are. It just brings sanity in a world that is going crazy. And we thank thee and bless thy name for the truth that is proclaimed in the house of God, maintained in the house of God, defended in the house of God. Oh, how we thank thee for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen.